Hello, and welcome to AgTech So What, brought to you by the AgThentic Group. I'm Sarah Nolette. No matter what part of the food or ag sector you might come to know best, I think it's safe to say that for the vast majority of us, there is way more motivating our work than just money. Our guest today is questioning those motivations, especially in the Australian context. What I think we have to recognize is what we value and stick true to those values. So we value that social fabric. Okay, cool. So when we think about the future, when we plan for the future, we need to ensure that any um, farming system, any ag tech, any future that we want to create holds that value dear. That's Liz Brennan, a woman with many titles, one of which is the non-executive director of Wide Open Agriculture, a regenerative food and ag company. Liz has spent years thinking about national and international systems, about food security, and about the role of unconventional voices in Australian agriculture. She joined us to talk about the whole journey, from growing up in the Western Australian wheat belt, through diversions into sports management, wedding planning, and green energy, and eventually to life-changing work in Papua New Guinea. And I had no idea about PNG, aside largely about connection from a war history context. But interestingly, PNG is less than four kilometres from Australia. So it's unreal that I knew so little about it. So I moved there for two years, six months after walking Kokoda. And yeah, just it was that experience alongside doing the Australian Rural Leadership Program, actually the two most professional formative experiences that I've had. And it was in both of those experiences that probably two things that kind of cropped up relevant to our conversation. One, I got interested in food security and I was fascinated by Papua New Guinea's food production. Like I, I, I knew Broadacre and I went to PNG and it was developing nation, again, in inverted commas. I was going, this, these people are more food secure than Australia. We're on our high horse here in Australia, but I was really struck by Papua New Guineans and their ag industry and their food security. So that was where my, uh, I guess, my career started tracking. And then I guess the other thing that's relevant is that I started to stand up in a leadership context. And so then came back to Australia and it was probably those two things that I started really asking questions um, about why it is that we do the things we do. If we've got these wicked problems that are at our doorstep in, in the context of ag, in the context of societally, globally, about how we're going to feed ourselves, then there's got to be a different way. Liz began exploring these challenges through a number of lenses, from volunteer leadership to marketing and regional development to running a consultancy and to her current position at Wide Open Ag. But all of that work is still being influenced by the time she spent in PNG, where she says her first six months were particularly impactful. I was up there as part of the then supported Australian Volunteers International Program. So I was a volunteer. Because of my marketing and business background, I went up on a two-year um, assignment uh, to work with the PNG Tourism Promotion Authority. So I was um, stationed out in the New Guinea Islands. So what the day looked like, I'd wake up, I lived in um, a village out of town. So I was the only white person in the community. Didn't have hot water, didn't have TV, radio that ants ate out. So it was pretty rudimentary but I loved it and I the community that I lived in I built relationships within the village and the women looked after me so I worked with the provincial authority and a lot with provincial government and it was the I guess the the effectively the premier or our equivalent of a premier um, in the province that saw the work that I was doing and he actually shoulder tapped me to take on other responsibilities within uh, the province so certainly it was interesting being a woman in a context like that because you're almost a sorry a white woman I should say because you're almost a, a third gender I was able to speak with women in the community on an equal footing, if we say, 
and similarly with the men in the community because I was yeah, I was seen as different and someone that they could um, connect and share with equally as well. You mentioned they're really food secure. What does that look like? What do they grow? And, and yeah, paint a picture of the ag landscape. Food security has a number of different metrics. And I guess my take when I went there and my observation of food security in, in comparison to Australia, what I knew as someone who grew up in Broadacre Ag, the PNG generally is subsistence agriculture. There are export-oriented products or commodities such as cocoa, um, coffee, coconut, balsa wood, for example. That's not necessarily food crop, but as a cash crop. So there are export markets, but generally speaking, it's subsistence agriculture where the, I guess, the supply chains or the the food kind of stays within community. I saw that as a really different way in which um, Australian ag and broadacre ag operates and we are so dependent on imports whether it's from another region another state or another country so the way that I view it was not better or worse it was just different and I thought gee so interesting that Papua New Guineans are so eager to learn from us, us Australians as a developed nation yet we have so much to learn from them. What's an example of something that Australia or Australian farmers can learn? I think that's absolutely right. This kind of hubris around we have to teach them or they often think they can learn from larger economies, but my instinct is it can go the other way. What are, what are some examples? I think we've fallen into a trap where we are so attached to economic output and we forget about the social and environmental impact of what we do. So in Papua New Guinea, we might, as Australians, we might be really critical if someone doesn't show up for work and we value work. Like work is, your title is who you are in our society. Yet I had staff whom when it was time to harvest a particular crop or when, you know, someone, and I say this tongue in cheek, but it's sometimes it felt like someone's auntie's dog's grandfather's great grandchild died and they went to a funeral you're like oh gee come on we got work to do but it's that real social fabric that has no one goes hungry in png sorry i say that statement loosely like people look out for each other i think that australian ag we don't and i hear it again and again farmers don't feel valued and i would argue that it's because we place most of our value in the economic output and not on the social fabric and the environmental impact that we're having on our landscapes on our country so i think our philosophical approach to ag is different and it's and i understand why i understand green revolution i understand why it is that this we have ended up with the outcomes that we have in the australian ag industry and i think we can change there's a tension between technology or like you mentioned the green revolution there's modern farming techniques that arguably could help with how easy it is to farm, how much food they could produce, and yet c- can you still maintain that social fabric and environmental benefits or are those this kind of technology and progress at odds with some of those core values? I think it's a healthy tension because I think it actually has this question what it is that we value and I think we can't go backwards to the way things were in a really, what's the word I'm looking for, nostalgic sense what I think we have to recognise is what we value and stick true to those values. So we value that social fabric. Okay, cool. So when we think about the future, when we plan for the future, we need to ensure that any um, farming system, any ag tech, any future that we want to create holds that value dear. Not from a nostalgic, I want to go back to the way things were, but from, no, this is important to us and whatever future that we create that at the heart of it. So they're right, as we've seen right across Australia and our family farm are no longer, sorry, our family are no longer involved in Broadacre. We're still involved in Hort and we are a a result of that consolidation 
of broadacre properties, of broadacre land. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but we've got to be mindful that when we think about the future we want for ag, we've got to plan for the things that we value and we want in yet what we want for our future generations. That impact where it has come up a couple of times. Do you think about that as environmental, as social, as women in ag? What's the impact you're trying to see? When I think about impact, I really think, how can I use my privilege, my education, my my position in society, my position in the ag industry? But I guess the other thing, and it really hit home for me when I was in PNG and saw food security was I was really surprised my colleagues, many of my colleagues are really overweight, my Papua New Guinean colleagues. And I'm going, wow, you've got this abundance of food and fresh fruit, like fresh produce, like just there in your home garden, your market garden. How is it that PNG has some of the highest non-communicable disease rates in the world? And it was this really interesting system of factors that influences an individual's diet in PNG, some of which was um, international trade, which sounds really weird. But it was that Australia and New Zealand were, you know, on the back of the sheep, producing all of this um, sheep meat. We had these fatty offcuts that we had a trade relationship with the UK that that folded and we then had this product we needed to put somewhere. So we dumped it into Pacific nations, I should say. And Pacific nations got a taste for this really fatty offcut of meat and developed a really unhealthy relationship with this product so much so that it displaced traditional diet and they then eschewed traditional diet for preference for these fatty offcuts and that's just one factor and then with the close relationship for example that PNG has with Australia public unions want to be like Australia and so they eschew traditional diets for rice and tinned product which is all well and good but it, it sets up this really unsustainable model if we look at diet like a model and so I then I was like wow and that's just diet and it's been affected by international trade and policy and what Papua New Guineans are influenced by and so it was that kind of example that I got really interested in so just this one little thing is part of a whole system and yet we create policy that's just about increasing yield um uh, simplifying ag policy but it's like and that's where we go and we can't see that ag is so intricately linked to health and to social policy and to the medical field. And so I was like, but if we solve X, we create Y. And if we don't deal with Y, then it creates this whole minefield of issues that we then have more issues to deal with. But so we actually need to consider the whole system. It's um, ag is you know, obviously natural systems and supply chains. There are so many unintended consequences. And yet in probably too many boardrooms and policymaking arenas, it's like, just a linear set of thinking and you lead to these really perverse outcomes. How does it play out to come in with a systems view in some of these rooms where people just want a black and white answer and an action that's going to happen tomorrow and show up on the quarterly earnings report this, this month? I've learned being in boardrooms, the need to be strategic. So you might plant a seed on day one, but it might be a day 100 before you can actually see that seed emerge, shall we say? Because I'm well aware that if I was to come in a bit to your point before about the hippie coming from PNG and espousing all these great ideas, you need to be able to ensure that what you have to say is fit for purpose in the audience it resonates with them because it's, it's, you know, all and good for the speaker to say this, but it's actually got to resonate with the audience. And I think that's definitely a tactic I've used in leadership positions that I've had because I've often been the woman 
or the young person. So I've often ticked two criteria. And I used to get really offended by people saying, we want you because you're a woman and it helps that you're young. And I'm now broaching out of that young phase. Um, I'm not really young. Oh, sorry, I am still young and young at heart. But there are a lot of younger people coming up in, you know, this generation that have got just amazing skills that we need to um, be ensuring that we're listening to and having part of our decision making so I've often um, found I feel like I've been a bit of a Trojan horse and yes I can come in as a Trojan horse and explode but is that the best use of my privilege and position so I'm very intentional and very strategic about how it is that I do things yeah planting seeds having conversations and ensuring that what I have to say is listened to I imagine you have this experience too. I know I do of a lot of people also wanting to have an impact and thinking about agriculture, whether it's food security, whether it's climate change, drought, regional communities as an ag, as a place for impact. Mm -hmm. When you think about giving them advice, do you see a tension between this systems view and I guess what I might challenge you to say is a disparate set of things that you're doing, like a bunch of different levers you're trying to pull versus pick one thing and focus and do that for 20 years or 30 years or solve one problem? Do you get those questions and how do you give advice between kind of do a bunch of things versus pick one thing and focus? Yeah, I think both have their merit. And this is what I love about our society. We have a real diversity of skills and skill sets and abilities. I view my skill set very much at the top of the T, very like I've got a broad set of skills. I'm a jill of all trades. I'm not a technical expert. And I think it's important to have both because a technical expert will be able to answer some really specific hard questions that do require a lot of investment in time and resources and brain power. And then you also need the people that spread across the top of the T that understand the systems and can see how all of those T's, all those silos, shall we say, are important and linked together. So in terms of whether how I would give advice, it's to understand where your skill set is, what what it how you see your your skill set, how you see you prefer to work and want to contribute and the levers that I seek to pull are fairly, well not they are intentional uh, and I do try and ensure that I stay focused because I'm a bowerbird um, of exciting projects and things to get involved in, but I'm also very intentional. So And I understand how I like to work. And so that was the advice that I would give to others is to understand where it is that they see what they're interested, where they say they can add the most value, where they can create the impact that they want to create. Hmm. I guess the the journey that I've been on, I'll be curious if this resonates, is as you start to have more of a voice and more recognition and more things to say and more confidence to say them, you get asked to do more things. And so there's no shortage of help, you know, be on this advisory committee, be on this board, come speak at this thing. And I found the tension between the like excitement around that and the ego around that versus the weight, the impact I want to have is actually not saying yes to all those things, but staying focused on doing these things. Do you feel that tension at all? All of the time. And it's really interesting that you mentioned ego because I was offered an opportunity politically a couple of years ago and I went, wow, that is a big deal. And I called up a dear friend of mine who has experience in the political sphere and she said to me, um, yeah, she called out ego. She's like, you're doing this because your ego 
thinks you're really flattered and whatnot or is it because you want to create impact in it and it was like in that instant I was like I'm not interested in this why did I even think of this that this would be a good idea like this sounds like hell and it was my ego that was responding and I guess the other thing that I do quite religiously is I um, am a very visual person and I mind map because like you get asked to do a thing and I often refer back to my mind map is this something that I'm interested in I said I was interested in this six months ago does this align and do you ever feel the, like women haven't always gotten asked to be in those rooms or young women haven't always gotten asked to be in those rooms. And so there's a, I need to say yes to this because I feel the weight of being there and representing, you know, women in X, women in ag, young women mm. in ag, regional women in ag, whatever it might be. Does that ever feel like a, I don't know, both an opportunity and a bit of a tension? Yes. And I think probably earlier in my career, I had more, I don't know if guilt's the right word, but there was a motivation because I saw that a shift needed to be made and I thought it struck while the iron's hot so to speak if they're up for it then they're up for it but then I think the other thing as I built my muscle around how it is that we view diversity in a decision-making context whether it's the boardroom a committee even a project or a work team so two things ensuring that gender is not just the metric we look to when we consider diversity and what I really try and influence is the culture that a decision-making context has. I'm not the all-body-seeing oracle on women. Like, I am a woman, but my lived experience is a lived experience. And also, yeah, we can't just view diversity as gender alone. So... When I am in a decision-making context, I really try and influence that culture. And that is not something I had initially, but I've built that muscle over years of being on boards and in those kind of spaces. Do you have any examples of, you've mentioned standing up in ag and asking questions or tough conversations, like any times where your values or the impact you want to have come into conflict with the organization that you're working with or, or there's been limits or challenges with upholding those values or realizing that change? Part of the reason I was drawn to wide open agriculture as a company was that they were doing and we are doing things differently. And I think it's a list, we are a listed company and we're a regenerative food and farming company. So we are in a lot of different ways, different to the status quo. And what I love about our DNA is that we're up for having bold conversations about how we could do things differently. And so how that plays out for me is that often in the spaces I'm in representing wide open agriculture is that I guess Regen Ag has been politicised a lot in the past, but I welcome those, those kinds of conversations because, cool, Regen Ag might not be the answer, but for me personally, it's where I see a next great step for food production, for ag for a way in which we relate to natural resources, a way in which we relate to country, to valuing different things. Back to my point before around it's not just the economy, it's actually taking into account the social fabric and the environmental impact that we're having. And I've been presenting at conferences here in Western Australia in front of growers um, about wide open ag. And yeah, hairy questions come at me. It excites me. I don't have the answers. I don't have all the answers. What Open Ag is doing now is unprecedented. And yeah, we're a listed company that is attracting uh, different streams of investment into ag. We are, you know, creating the world's first regenerative oat milk here in Western Australia using WA regeneratively grown oats. We're hoping to unlock the power of Australian sweet lupins as a protein source um, that can be used in a whole range of different things from an additive as a protein right down to making cheese for goodness sakes or 
whatever we decide describe cheese as and right down to that conversation about what's cheese is it can you make cheese out of lupin protein who knows how about we have a conversation about it this idea that agriculture is especially focused on the past and the way we've done things in the past and the heritage and the history that we've come from. And that's so beautiful in so many ways, like you've talked about both in Australia and in other countries. And yet other industries spend more time talking about the future and what innovations we can drive and what things we can change and what challenges we can have and how we can call things new things and make new things and do them with new materials. And agriculture resists that pretty strongly. Do you think that's a fair characterization and is that view limiting the growth of agriculture? I certainly think there are some parts of the ag industry that are like that and I can even hear it in the way people introduce themselves and it's interesting that my framing was I grew up in the WA wheat belt and that's how I justify my existence as someone who works in ag which is actually really unhelpful. It should be I'm Liz, I'm up for a really exciting sustainable future for ag. And it shouldn't matter that you're not a sixth generation beef farmer from Queensland. But it's so interesting that's how we frame it. And I think what I've noticed, and I think it's really easy to hang crap on government in big G sense, but from a community development slash regional development point of view, it is so often that we forget to have people slash community centric or driven anything and we see it with policy being made about the ag industry we see it in initiatives that are rolled out within government and it's and that's not and it's not just government it is business it is it, it's so often decisions are made without um, yeah due process and good consultation with community so I I also understand why people um, and me included give the context because context is actually critical you know nothing about us without us I think that is so critical when we're making decisions at any level when you think about wide open ag it seems like there's this interesting opportunity to apply technologies like what you're doing with lupins and, and some of the ways the business is thinking about scaling but also maintain that environmental and social focus is that true what I see from the outside and any color you can provide on how technology is being used and is there a tension between regen and technology or is that a false dichotomy? I think it is a bit to what I said before about that tension between how it is I see the future of the ag industry when we are creating that future keeping at the heart of us the values that we hold dear so it is I think to a certain extent a false dichotomy because we can't go backwards like we've got to we we, we know better, so how about we do better? And if doing better is to utilise a technology to allow us to be more efficient, more sustainable, yes, perhaps reduce um, the number of people, for example, per hectare on a particular property. So when we make decisions about that, what does that look like? What's the impact of that? And how is it that we can ensure that the social fabric is still continues to be part of that DNA and headcount or not? It, it gets really scary to me for especially Western Australia because when I think about bringing in technology scale of farming, sustainability of farming for environmental reasons, it gets tough to not see a tension with social fabric and like where did kids go to school and who lives in this town when you're going to fly from Perth out to wherever. And that's true in, in other countries too. It seems like a really tough trade-off to break. What solutions do you see or what paths forward? Because again, I, I see too much narrative that's let's just keep the way it is or go back to the way it was or vibrant regional communities. And it's okay, but how do we do this in a way that is actually viable for environmental goals and economic goals that, yeah, maybe we just have to change the whole system and break this focus on growth. I don't know. What, what would your answer be? I think to continue to 
follow what we've always done is a really dangerous thing because we fall into this falseness of this is the only way it can be. And I guess I'm, I'm nervous to say that I don't have any have an answer, but I think what we, and I, I honestly probably don't, but I do know that we need a transformation. We can't just keep adapting and adapting is just operating in the same, thinking the same with the same resources and not doing anything fundamentally differently, but transforming is going, okay, let's think more systemically. Let's think bigger picture. What's important to us? Because there's a trade-off that we're not being conscious to here. So in the context of, for example, education, I think we could do education differently. How else could we imagine what education looks like? We could be creating really great flourishing education facilities and systems in the regions. There's nothing saying that we couldn't. And because when you start losing those key infrastructures in communities, your point, Sarah, like that's when community really starts to dwindle. And like anything is possible. We've actually just got to reimagine and transform the way that we've done things what probably what I've learned is that you don't have to have the answers but you've got to be asking good questions what are hard conversations in agriculture that we're not having enough of one that I'll I think you mentioned climate before and I don't know if there's anything that comes to mind around climate um, that would be pretty top of mind for me so I think I remember hmm, maybe about five years ago so I've been involved with Farmers for Climate Action for um, a little while now and I remember putting an article into the one of the ag industry newspapers and lots of letters to the editors saying climate change is fooey and doesn't exist and rah, rah, rah. and I think if I was to do the same again now I don't know if I would get any letters to the editor necessarily I think that we have come a long way what I'm worried about is that we're not being as proactive as we need to be as an industry let alone as a society I don't think we are taking it seriously enough I also feel like there's a real just not knowing what to do people analysis paralysis Yes, like it is, bloody hell, where do you start? And so I think that there's a real, not an apathy, but a real tension of like far out, there's this massive thing on the horizon. And especially for farmers, so I think there's a real, yeah, paralysis to communities going, how do I even do a thing, with, especially like in the short term? So I think that's a conversation that we're not having, but I also um, am just really mindful that, people especially people on the land it's lived like and people are living these impacts now and it's freaking hard so my commitment is to ensure that these and a big part of my work is to ensure that these individuals and these communities are resilient and have enough in their tank to be able to one respond to these climatic emergencies but also go right how do we set ourselves up for the future that we're not going to be hit as dramatically as we have been in the past I think it's an interesting opportunity for ag and for Australia in particular, because like I've had so many calls in the last weeks and months of people going, what the heck is happening down there? You got fires, you got floods, you got droughts, like what is going on? And for farmers, especially to take a leadership role in saying, this is real. Here's what we're doing about it. Here's what you can do too. Obviously our government aside, I think that's an opportunity for farmers to play a leadership role and hopefully, yeah, people like you will help to make that happen. And that's the beauty. So two and a bit years ago we had a strategy session for one open ag and we were like so how is it that we can unlock or overcome barriers that regenerative farmers are, are having and that's why we've done what we've done in terms of online food platform protein and oatmeal kind of looking at our comparative advantage for here in west australia what we could do as a company 
But then also there was this interesting piece of like, we've got all these conscious consumers, as we call them, like that are really interested in doing stuff too. How do we, how do we connect those with the regenerative farmers, which is why where our online platform came out, it was like a really easy win because there are people that are just, that are not on the land, that are very concerned about what is happening on the land and that are committed to having a more sustainable future as well. So it was actually about us connecting them and creating opportunity for both. And I think it's going to take everyone to be able to solve these wicked problems. So the more that we can create connection, the better. I love that example too of technology enabling scale and breaking some of those trade-offs. You've mentioned diverse perspectives and getting different voices in the room and empowering them with, with confidence. What are or who are some of the voices that we don't have enough of in the room in agriculture? I've often been the first woman or the young person and they're really great first steps for a decision-making um, group to have, especially if we've got some pretty similar thinking, shall we say, around the table who I see that we're missing at the table. And I think it's probably been my, through my exposure in the horticulture industry. We have a lot of new Australians that work in the horticulture industry that have some very diverse perspectives, lived experiences, do things very differently. And a bit to my point before about PNG, not better or worse, different. And there's some great brains that we can have around decision-making tables on how it is that we can make the ag industry um, more sustainable, more inclusive. And the other opportunity or the other group of people that I see that we absolutely need to have at the decision-making table, especially when it comes to land management, First Nations Australians. We need to have Aboriginal people at the table, especially in relation to making decisions about country and about land, but also barrier, not even generations. We all know this, thousands of years of knowledge that we have overlooked for quite some time now. And... There are lessons to be learned from the past to help create that future that aligns with what it is that we see as an ag industry that's important to us and at the heart of our values, but also as a country. From my perspective, our conversation with Liz today captured some really valuable lessons. I appreciated her point that however much PNG farmers have to learn from Australians, they have just as much to teach, in particular about valuing and prioritizing the social fabric of communities and the environmental integrity of the land. Next, Liz's description of being strategic in the boardroom is critical. The idea of planting seeds resonates with our work. In other words, it's usually not possible to introduce an idea and then immediately ask people to act on it. It often takes days, weeks, or even years for an idea or a change to take root and, as Liz says, to emerge. Finally, Liz's idea of nothing about us without us is incredibly powerful not only in the context of government or policy, but for businesses as well, and more broadly, for anyone working and hoping to make an impact in the food and ag space. The community of people that's meant to be impacted should be the first to be consulted, and their feedback should be the most important driver of progress. Whether you're a volunteer working with the local government or a company aiming to build a technology that makes your customer's life better. So that's it for another episode of Ag Tech So What? Thanks to our guest, Liz Brennan of Wide Open Agriculture. And of course, thank you for listening. For more information on any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit our website, agtechsowhat.com. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.